You have no doubt seen the before and after photos of someone who's experienced a total makeover, total transformation. They perhaps hire some professional to tell them what they need to change with regard to their hairstyle. If it's a female, usually it's a makeup transformation. And then last but not least, a total wardrobe change. You need to get rid of the old-fashioned clothes and, and, and get up to date. And if you've seen those before and after pictures, they're, it's a pretty stark contrast, isn't it? You, you do a double take. There is a transformation. You may have even thought, I, I think I need one of those transformations. The problem is, it's only external. It does nothing for the soul. In Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, I want to talk to you about a total makeover. Paul calls it a new man. He would say in verse 22, that you put off the old man concerning the former conversation or behavior, which is corrupt according to the deceitful desires or lust, and be renewed, refreshed, renovated in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. That's a transformation that's by the grace of God. It's by the Spirit of God. And Paul is beseeching the church to live within this transformation that's only by the grace of God. And to keep working out. This transformation in what Paul calls a refreshing, a renewing, a restoration of the spirit of our minds. So I'm going to look at that title under three headings. Probably won't finish this morning, but under three headings. First, the old-fashioned way in verses 17 and 18. This is what you were. Or the old walk, if you prefer. Verses 17 and 18. Then verse 19 through 24 The new you. Here is the new you. And then in verses 25 through the rest of the chapter, the new wardrobe, the new clothing. Paul is going to start unpacking the articles that we need to start putting on. And most of the articles will deal, interestingly, with your speech. Don't lie. Don't get angry sinfully. What happens when you do? Words. Don't speak corruptly. Speak grace. And rather than be bitter, speak words of forgiveness. So that's the specific clothing that we're going towards. But we don't get there unless we understand what Paul is saying leading up to verse 25. So that's where we're going. And again, probably not finishing today, but that's what we'll look forward to uh, today and then uh, perhaps next Sunday. First, the old-fashioned way. Now, by old-fashioned, that just means characterized by an era in the past. It's behaviors, ways, ideas, and tastes that are in the past. And so Paul begins by saying, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that henceforth... We walk not as other Gentiles walk. Now, I think it's worth pointing out something about this brief opening statement. Paul here in verse 17 is going to reconnect with verse 1 of chapter 4. If you were to look at those two verses side by side, you'll see many parallels. There he says, I beseech thee, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. uses some of the same languages in this brief introduction, but here he adds weightiness to it. He's going to use a word that speaks of weight or solemnity. Now, he's going to describe this solemnity in, in four ways. First, he's going to repeat himself. This I say and testify. Now, when you and I use redundancy, we're usually just being too wordy. Frankly, I, I do that a lot. I don't like it. Sometimes my wife tells me, you know, you just said the same thing over and over. Okay. Okay. Sometimes that's not good, but when Paul does that, it's not redundant. He's not just saying, this is how you need to behave. 
He's charging you. He's testifying. That's not just redundancy. That's, that's applying some weight to what he's saying. Secondly, he uses the personal pronoun I. I, Paul. This is the third time at least. Chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. And now chapter 4, verse 17. This I say. Okay. It's you, Paul. No, it's I, Paul, the holy apostle. Chapter 2, verse 20. On which the church is being built. Why would it be built on a man? No, it's the words of the man who is inspired to write every single word, lest it be italicized, which means it's not in the original. Every single word is breathed out by God. Every word I'm saying here is not. I can use God's inspired word, for which I hope I am, but every single word I say is not being breathed out by God. But every word of Paul, I, Paul, this is what I say, carries weight and authority. Furthermore, this is the apostle who was given revelation of the mystery of God in Ephesians 1, 8, 9, and 10. Wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will. And in chapter 3, Paul says that this revelation, which in ages past was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets. I, Paul, is one of those holy apostles. Through Paul is revealed the revelation of the mystery for which God is using the church to spread the aroma of His glory among the Gentiles and bringing in the Gentiles into the church. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of the same promise in Christ through the gospel. Through the gospel is how they partake of the promise of Christ. I, Paul, has said that. I, Paul, is saying this is crucial. What he's about to say, what follows, this I say, is crucial for the church to understand in terms of being a body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint is supplying. Being a body where to the intent that now unto principalities and powers in heavenly places are being made known through the church the manifold wisdom of God. That the galaxies and peoples of the world would see the, the multicolored grace of God and wisdom of God through you. That's huge. That's overwhelming. Except Paul prays that we have the spirit in the inner man. That's the only way it happens. That's the only way we grow into that. This I say, this is Paul the Apostle. Thirdly, he's not just saying it's repeating himself or first person. He's using the word testify. That's the word that speaks of solemnity. It means serious. If you look it up, it means not being cheerful or smiling. It means serious, not joking or half-hearty. And that would go over like a lead balloon in some churches today, wouldn't it? But no joking here. Also, I'm, not, I'm not being half-hearted. This is grave gravity. So Paul is not like a travel agent that's offering you one of three packages on where you may travel on your vacation. No, he says there's one option I'm about to say. So there's weightiness, there's gravity. Now don't, so don't think that because you have gravity, you can't have gladness. Gravity coexists with joy because Paul is the apostle of joy, is he not? And yet he says, what I'm about to say is grave, serious. I'm not smiling, I'm not joking about it. There's weightiness. And then fourthly, he says, henceforth. That means no more, no longer. It's like Isaac Watts penned in that song. No more, my God, I boast no more. Of all the duties I have done, I quit the hopes I had before to trust the merits of your Son. No more. Now we understand no more doesn't mean no more sin. I'll, I'll, I'll no more sin again, but he's no more. This is a commitment that I'm making. This is a commitment to hear what Paul is saying right here, right now, and to apply this commitment in your life, in the life of the church. First application. See, part of the problem with those total makeovers is they start that new pathway, then the old clothes come back, don't they? 
hairstyle grows out, gets back to the way it was. Everything goes back to the way it was. That's what Paul is saying is to be no more, no longer. Have you drifted back into a walk of the old-fashioned way that you were? Maybe it was subtle. Maybe you didn't intend to. But yet you slowly drifted back into some way the way that you used to be. Well, this is what Paul is calling that church and this church not to do. So he's calling for a commitment, maybe a rededication we would call it, right? A commitment to no longer walk in this way. And this is how he expresses it. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that henceforth you walk not as other Gentiles who walk in the vanity of their mind. And now he's going to use four words or four expressions to describe that vanity. Two perfect passives, which just means something in the past, completed but keeps going. And then two prepositional phrases, through and because, which are both the same preposition, that describe the reason for the first two. Vanity is futility. It means useless, fruitless, aimless, like a dead-end street. Those are four depressing words. Imagine a football game with no end zone and no goalpost. That's useless. <laughs> Imagine a basketball game with no goalpost. Or rather, I got the wrong sport. Basketball goal, that's it. And these players are just dribbling the ball back and forth aimlessly. They don't even know what they're doing or why they're doing it. At the beginning of the game, the, the score is nothing to nothing. And at halftime, somebody says, what's the score? Well, it's zero to zero. At the end of the game, after it's all over, the buzzer goes off and the scoreboard is nothing. Zero. Beloved, at the funeral of the most successful man that's ever lived on this planet, who is outside of Christ, the words would go, here lies a man who accomplished nothing. His life was useless. It was fruitless. Oh, not in terms of the success among men, but it had no eternal value to God. Because it was done apart from faith in Christ. Zero. That's the number expressed as what? Vanity, futility, nothingless. Now that's depressing. But we recognize Paul is calling us not to think that way anymore. And not to live that way in the vanity of your mind. Now how is that, Paul? Having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. So the perfect tense here, you could express it this way. Having been darkened in understanding. So that's, that's completed past action. Having been estranged from God. So it started somewhere in the past, completed, and it just keeps going. Now when did that start? At your birth. The Adamic nature was imputed. And from that point... Your understanding totally darkened. And you're estranged from the life of God. No wonder life is futile. No wonder life is nothingness. Useless. That's what we once were. Paul is saying, no more. No more. Now here's two prepositional phrases that describe the cause for those two Words, darkened understanding, estranged, alienated from God. Through the ignorance that is in them, know something. They don't know God. They don't know His value. They don't know His glory. Now Romans 1, which is kind of a parallel, this being a kind of a summary of Romans 1, Paul says, well, they did know God. And they did understand His eternal power and Godhead. But Paul says here, they're ignorant. Of course, when you put the two together, they don't know His value. They know His existence. That's why the psalmist says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Why is he a fool? Because he knows better. He understands that God exists. He understands the eternal power of God, that He's a powerful God. But He doesn't love God. He doesn't know God in that way. He, he doesn't see that God is anything unique or holy. 
So it's through the ignorance, and then it's because, and that's the same preposition, through the blindness of the heart, porosis, hardening of the heart. The heart is hard. Now that's our former way of living. But then he takes it a step further in verse 18, or 19 rather. Who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Past feeling is translated insensitive to pain or callous. You know, when you get calluses on your hand, uh, the skin hardens over time and you feel no pain there. You, You could pinch it or poke it with a pen and probably not feel the pain. That's the past feeling given over to lasciviousness unbridled lust now what has happened the alarm system called the conscience has been disarmed the batteries have been taken out you know you do that when it goes off in the kitchen and you try to get the smoke away you just take the batteries out it doesn't work The God-given alarm system in the natural conscience that conveys this, this is a right thing, this is a wrong thing, which is found in all societies. That's why you can go to tribes and they know it's not right to take a man's wife. Well, who told them? The law of conscience told them. Now the conscience is being seared with a hot iron. The natural conscience is being given way. And God's restraining grace is being removed. Romans 1.28 Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over. They give themselves over. God's restraining grace in a society is removed. The conscience is seared. And they go unbridled in the expression of their desires. Like a horse without a bridle. What's that for? Restraint. You take the bridle off. He's moving on. No restraint. To work all uncleanness with greediness or covetousness. This is the society that we are now living in, isn't it? It was made known of a story just this past week. Of a man who attempted to sexually assault a woman. Not in the darkness in the middle of a department store with people around. He was apprehended quickly. Unbridled, unrestrained lust. It's happening all around us. You may say, I don't remember ever being quite that bad. And so you weren't. And this is the reason. Depravity is total, not absolute. Let me say that again. Depravity is total. It is not absolute. That means it can express itself in degrees. And that's what's happening here. It can get deeper and darker, but depravity is total. Unlike semi-Pelagianism, which says man is fallen at birth, but there's some divine spark within him. There's something in one corner of his heart that if he can tap into that goodness, he can be saved. No, it's total. Our depravity is total, but it's not absolute. Which means in this natural condition, men can move deeper into the darkness. Deeper in expressing their depravity in unbridled lust. Desires may have been in check. Because your parents kept you in check. They trained your conscience. God's restraining grace, that kept your lust in check. But everything that makes you depraved is the same as the man who tried to attempt such a heinous act. Total depravity, but not absolute. So this is what we were. Even if we didn't express it to the fullest degree, things kept us in check, yet inwardly darkened, alienated, ignorant of God, and hardness of heart. Until God puts in a heart of flesh that's pliable. We were hard. Even if we didn't give over 
to unbridled lust. There's no difference between us and the unsaved in terms of our natural bent before God rescued us. Now, what is Paul saying this to this church of Christians for? Apparently, some of them have drifted back to a position as if they're darkened once again. As if they don't know God. As if the heart was hard all over again. Or as Hebrews 3.13 expresses, harden not your heart. See? So Paul is speaking these weighty words because these saved Christians by grace, apparently some of them are moving, drifting back to a lifestyle that's counter to the very purpose of God that he called them to in the life of the church. Now how is he? Have you begun to put on the old clothes of the old man after a total transformation of grace? Yet you slowly drift back to the same old hairstyle, the same clothing, the clothing that Christ has rescued from. He's put on you clothes of righteousness, clothing of true holiness. So you can see what Paul is doing. He's saying, we're not to walk anymore in this manner. Well then, how is that accomplished? We obviously would acknowledge it's possible to go back and think that way in vanity, to to go through life dribbling the basketball as if there's no basketball goal, aimlessly, fruitlessly, useless. And so Paul is speaking these very words to pull them out again from their drifting and moving backwards. So this is the next thing that he says. And this is what we'll call now a new you. He wants them to live in light of being the new person that they are in Christ. So beginning in verse 20, listen to the sharp transition. But you have not so learned Christ. If so be that you have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye... All right? So Paul uses three verbs here in in kind of a classroom setting, educational. We'll call that a new curriculum. The new man has a new curriculum. You know, you you engineers here, that's all the subjects you take for a course of of training that you want, engineering. So here's this curriculum, you got to get all this done. But here, there's only one subject. It's the Christ. He's the curriculum. He's the headmaster. He's the subject matter. He's the academy. He's the school. He's the diploma. He's everything. So let's look at these three verbs that speak of education. First, you have not so learned Christ. This is an unusual statement. Typically, a personal object is not followed by this word, manthano. We say we learned math, we learned English, we learned history, but we don't say we learned Jesus or learned a person, typically. The word learn means to imbue with knowledge. To imbue means to, uh, to introduce something into something else in such a way that it, that it affects the whole of it. What Paul is saying is you came to know the person of Christ. He's speaking here of the language of people that, that came in touch with a personal living being. And his name is Jesus He's not saying you learned religion or you learned about Christianity. You learned how to follow. You learned how to obey. You learned doctrine. Yes, that's all part and parcel of being a Christian. He says you learned a person. Have you learned a person? Do you know Jesus? Paul says you did. You learned Christ. This is the basis for no longer, no more walking that way. You've learned Christ. And then he uses two words to suggest how this happened. If so be, and I don't think he's doubting that anybody actually knows Christ. He's saying, surely since, surely since, after seven years since I've been to Ephesus, surely since you heard Him and you've been taught by Him is the truth that could be in Him, the truth that's in Jesus. 
Now, the point that Paul is making is that obviously they learned Christ, they heard of Christ, they were taught in Christ by Paul. You go back and read Acts. He was doing the teaching. His subject matter was Christ alone. He determined at Corinth not to know anything among them except Jesus Christ and crucified. But something else happened that made the difference. It wasn't just Paul's teaching. It was the Spirit of God. It came so that when the Word of God that was centered upon Christ was taught, the Spirit so opened the vain mind of understanding and they received a person, not a religion, not a principle, not a doctrine, but a man. And they began to relate personally to Jesus Christ. They related to Him by faith. Jesus speaks of this in John chapter 6 when He introduces the Jewish people to the idea, the metaphor that He is the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to Me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on Me shall never thirst. So after unpacking Himself in that way, the Jews murmured. They were confused and they were a bit upset. Is not this Joseph, the son of Mary? Or is not this Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph? Whom we know, how does he say, I am the bread of life? They murmured. Jesus said in John 6, 43, murmur not among yourselves. In other words, this is not a problem of your intellect. It's not a problem of your IQ. Don't murmur. No man can come to me. Now, if we interpret that, that means this. No man can come to me. Impossibility. Cannot happen. Now here's the hope. Except my Father which sent me, draw him, and I will raise him up the last day. There's our hope, beloved. It's not in us, is it? The word draw means to drive with force. At first, that may sound a little too forceful. You know, you can force a child... To eat lunch, to eat their broccoli, and drink their prune juice by saying, you're not going to get up till you do. Or you can drive a child to eat by setting a big chocolate chip cookie in front of them and a big glass of milk. Now what's the difference in the two ways you drive them? One is they're driven by the attractiveness of what is set before them. The one is external force. Jesus obviously is talking about internal draw. When we see Him as bread to the hungry soul and as thirst-quenching water by the Spirit, we come. That's not probability, friend. That's not maybe they come. They come. Why? Verse 44. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. Everyone therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. There are the same three verbs that Paul uses in Ephesians 4 in the 20th and 21st verse. They hear, they're taught, they learn Christ, and Jesus says they come to Him as bread. Paul is preaching, he's preaching They're hearing about Christ. He's teaching about Christ. It seems that they're learning about Christ, but nothing's happening. They're like the silly women in 2 Timothy chapter 3, ever learning and never able to come to knowledge. You'd take a child out of the classroom. Something is wrong. If the child repeats the same grade year after year, the teacher has a problem here, or the student's not getting it. You say, he doesn't know the subject. So Paul's preaching, and then what happens? God teaches. They learn from God. God opens the heart, and the gospel is received, and they come to Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. That means they'll believe. If you just run that through John 6, it's unmistakably coming is believing in Jesus as bread. He's bread. Is He bread to you? Is Jesus the bread for your soul 
has God revealed Jesus as more than just a good man, a mighty teacher, but the Savior, the Lord of your soul, who's bred to you. That's what Paul is saying here. You have heard Jesus. You heard it from me, but more importantly, God taught you. That's personal covenantal language of Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8. They shall no more teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. Is the covenant saying, We don't need to be doing what we're doing right now. We're wasting our time. We're teaching. No. The purpose statement, for they all shall know, explains the prior statement. The priest taught. The prophets taught. Know the Lord. Know the Lord. But it was ineffectual. Nobody knew the Lord. God's saying, Because now, in the new covenant, your teaching will be effectual. It's going to get the result because they shall know me. It won't be just men teaching you anymore. I mean, that happens all over the planet. Sometimes there is absolutely zero results. Why? That's just people saying, know the Lord. But when God comes in with the covenant, He opens the heart, the gospel is embrace. They understand, they know. The darkness of verse 17. The ignorance of verse 18. The alienation of verse 18. The hardness is overcome by the grace of God and people know Christ. That's called sovereign grace. <laughs> Don't walk that way anymore. You've learned the person. You've heard Him. You've heard about Him. You have been taught by God. Alright? Now, Paul is going to give three other things that, are, that are, make up what is, con, what is in the teaching. In other words, as you've been taught the truth as it is in, in Jesus, that, here it is, so he's not, he's not leaving for us to guess what we've been taught. We've been taught three things. Put off the old man, be renewed, put on the new man. Now there's some debate among commentators and people we call scholars, which I am not. Those are men that I read after occasionally. That Paul is either talking in indicatives or imperatives. That means he's making a statement of fact, that's an indicative, or he's telling us something to do. The original language will not let us solve the problem. You can't go to the grammar and say, okay, this is an indicative or this is an imperative. It's not there. So if it's indicatives, he's saying this, you have put off the old man. You have been renewed. You have the new man. Statement of fact. Wherefore, putting off. So he goes into the imperatives next. If he's speaking imperatives, he's saying, you need to put off the old man. You need to be renewed and you need to put the new man on. Wherefore putting off. Which is it? You knew I was going to say this. It's both. (laughs) Whether we can decide it here, we can use the rest of the Bible to determine that Paul often uses them interchangeably and the foundation of an imperative is a fact. If the fact doesn't exist, helpless to obeying a command of God. For example, Romans chapter 6 verses 5 and 6, Paul first speaks in, Indicative. He's going to give you a statement of fact about the old man. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now he's speaking of baptism. Baptism is a symbol. A symbol. It's a likeness of something. But it's a likeness of a reality. What's the likeness? We go down into the watery grave. We've been planted together in his death. We come up in resurrection symbolically. We shall also be Raised with Him. So that symbol is pointing to something that has happened, really, and something that really will happen in the future. We've been raised to new life in Christ, and one day, new life in our bodies will come out of the ground. What is the reality that that this baptism specifically points to? Verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man has been crucified with Him. Indicative. He's not saying you need to crucify your old man. He said, it's happened. It's done. That henceforth, 
the body of sin might be destroyed that we should not serve sin. All right? Destroyed is to deprive of force. What force has the body of sin been deprived of because your old man is crucified? That's a fact. Slavery to sin, that's what the word serve means. That we should henceforth not serve sin. On what basis can we possibly think that we could not be enslaved to sin all over again? You've been crucified with Christ. Statement of fact. The dominion of sin has been canceled. That's why you sing this song, or or, or we're just deceiving ourselves. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Maybe. Oh no, he does. Now notice the imperative in verse 12. I'm in Romans chapter 6. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Indicative, the old man's crucified. So sin would not dominate you. Here's the imperative. Don't let it happen. Don't let sin rule you. How can that possibly be? Because the old man is crucified. Now be careful. He's not gone. He's just been rendered inoperative. He's lost his power, but he's not completely gone yet. We understand that from Romans 7. So the indicative is the foundation to any command that God gives us. And I think that's what Paul is doing here. We, we can take them as both. And I don't mean that they mean both. I mean we can't determine. So we go to the rest of the Bible. We know that the indicative of truth, the old man has been crucified. You have been renewed. You have a new man. Now put him off. Be renewed. Put him on. You see the connection. Now here's where we have to be very careful. Somebody says, okay, I'll just put him on. It's not a problem. I need to stop saying that. I need to stop doing that. I need to start saying this in its place. Verses 25 through 32. I need to use different words. I need to start behaving different. Okay. What are you going to do with deceitful lust? I'm in verse 22 again. This is what we've been taught. That you put off concerning the former behavior. See? Don't talk that way. That's exactly right. And don't act like that. Yes. But the former behavior of the old man is corrupt according to deceitful lust. What are you going to do about that? If you do nothing with that text right there. All you have is saying right things. Doing right things. You're a moral person. And inwardly, the cravings of the old man are ruling everything you say. The power of the gospel or the power of verse 20, learning Christ, knowing Christ is set aside for a self-help gospel and just being, what we might say, a better person. Won't work. You may be better with your total makeover with the new hairdo and the new clothing, but inwardly we would still be ruled by a deceitful desire. So we have to talk about that. What is a deceitful desire? It's a false idea. It's deception. It's a false idea that has convinced you that that object, that created thing is going to deliver on your desire for pleasure and for fulfillment. But it's a lie. It won't happen. In that deception, the cravings of the old man is speaking. He's doing. He's acting in relation way to satisfy his cravings. So what comes out? Lying. Anger. Corruption. Bitterness. Wrath. Malice. And I'm not forgiving you. If we don't address the deceitful lust, verse 25 doesn't happen. So this is not a self-help message where you, where you get a makeover and you put on some nice clothes like, yes, I, 
My wife bought this tie. I've already had a comment on it that it looks nice. So I assume this is a pretty nice tie. But inwardly, what am I? Imagine standing behind the pulpit preaching to you and inwardly, I'm being driven by a deceitful desire that what will really satisfy me if people tell me what a great tie I have or what a great preacher you are. Every now and then you just just say, Mike, you're just not a good preacher. Please tell me that. It's called pride. It's terrible and it's such a struggle. And we hate it, don't we? So we've got to be careful and say, well, I need to stop saying that. Yes. Yes, I do. But I need something that will deal with my deceitful lust. Oh, how deceptive it is. What is that? Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Right? Renew is like, it's two words, a compound word, up, upward, and fresh, youth, young, up, fresh, refresh. It's like that button on your computer browser. You know, when when you want to tell the browser, deliver to me the most updated page, you hit that little arrow thing, refresh, new content, upgraded, updated. Renewal means we're asking God to give us update, fresh views. Of the supremacy of Christ, the one we've learned. Not fresh views of principles. Yes, we, we need those. Not a list of things I should say and I shouldn't say. That would be helpful. I need to be renewed in the spirit of my mind. That's countered with the old vanity of the mind. See? Word spirit. Carries the idea of a, a disposition that governs the soul. Now, throughout Ephesians, primarily the word spirit means the Holy Spirit. But here it would be odd to say the Holy Spirit of your mind. That wouldn't work. One other time in this letter, Paul used spirit to mean something in the human. Ephesians 2, right? The spirit that now is at work in the children of disobedience. What is that spirit? In the desires of the flesh, fulfilling the lust of the flesh, and of the mind, and our children of wrath, just like everybody else. What govern, what governs your mind, and how can we get there? Right? Disposition, the, the tendency, the inclination, the mood, the, the, the direction, the bent. What's your tendency when you wake up in the morning? Where's the coffee? (laughs) Don't speak to me. What's your tendency when pressures flood your soul? When when pressure situations come in from the outside? Family pressures, difficulties start start to move in. What's your tendency? What's your disposition? What's governing you? If it's the deceitful desires, it will begin to express itself primarily in what you say. And what I say. My disposition. See, what Paul is calling for is a, is a renewal, a, a refreshing, a renovation that's ongoing of seeing Christ and relating to Christ by faith in the inner man. Chapter 3, verse 17, that's what he prays for, right? That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That you would be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And this disposition would start to govern more of our life, our moods, our, our inclination in such a way that we're prepared to speak in relationships. Now remember, this is what this is about. We're speaking the truth in love. We're in a body of people, of sinners, who often say the wrong thing to one another. Right? We're, we're in marriages, we're in families, we often maybe speak too loudly to each other or too angrily to each other. Right? That's an old man tendency. Why do I do that? deceitful desires. That's what Paul is saying. That's like a neon sign to tell us, here's my problem. So, a new vocabulary, having a list of words that I need to say, having seven principles for good communication techniques won't work. 
They can follow this. That's a good thing. That's coming in verse 25. But I need help with deceitful desires. So, so where's my help? Verse 24, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. That's the only place this Greek word is used in the Bible. It's not hagios, the typical word we see. It means devotion. If a deceitful lust is a false idea that convinces me that some object is going to deliver on my fulfillment, what's the opposite? It's truth. True is the same word for Truth in Jesus. Aletheia. It's the same word that we already looked at. You've been taught as the truth is in Jesus. True devotion. Devotion. What's the first thing you think about when you think of a devoted husband or a devoted wife? Loyal. Committed. How about ardent? That's a word we don't use anymore. It means Passionate. You think about a man that's deeply, deeply in love with his wife. That's devotion, right? The new man has been created after the image of God in righteousness and true devotion. We counter the deceitful lust of false ideas with the truth of the knowledge of God. Which this new man has a devotion now, has a desire, has a delight, has a love for God. Why? Because grace has brought it to you. So the only way to counter a deceitful desire is a true desire. Or the promises that God has given you. As Paul says in Colossians 3, the parallel verse, the new man's renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So we counter the old man with the new man devotion and love for God. And how is that love, that disposition, that renewal going to happen? But by the word of His truth. We're looking for Christ in the Bible. We're asking the Holy Spirit, inflame us, warm our hearts, melt the coldness, do away with the hardness, inflame us, show us the Savior we love and Give us that heart devotion again and again. Like the time when you were first made over. Remember that? I'm sure that person on the after picture looks themselves. I'm just a new person. How happy I am. And then what happens? Life sets in, doesn't it? You remember that time when you were first baptized? You learned Christ. It was all about Christ. And then the weeds began to come in and the difficulties and challenges of life See, we need renewal, beloved. We need this. That's a good word, isn't it? It, it, it presupposes kind of expiration, doesn't it? You know, you renew a, a subscription, it means it's expired. So we get expired almost every day. We need renewal after renewal because the deceitful man, the cravings are so powerful and so strong. And if we don't understand that, we just meander aimlessly dribbling the basketball. And the cravings overcome us once again. And the new clothing is, is ripped off in our daily practice. And the old clothing creeps back in. So what Paul is calling for is a renewal of the disposition of the mind. Not just thinking differently. Yes, we need to think differently. But a different disposition. Which includes the thoughts, the heart, the, the feelings, the mood. That's not something we can do, is it? That's not something I have the power to just do on any given day, but the Holy Spirit does. And so Paul prays that, that you would be given might, all might, by the Spirit in the inward man. That's the same as the new man. Chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Now if you had all might by the Spirit of God in the inner man, in the new disposition of the new man, what would that mean? Christ is dwelling in your hearts by faith. And what's happening? You're rooted and grounded in love. Love. Love for God and love for one another. See, the new man is a lover of God and a lover of others. But he can't be 
if the cravings of deceitful desires and lust are controlling him, then he's a lover of himself. And he uses his words in calculated ways to get what he wants out of the relationship, whether it's church, marriage, family, work. He's using everything in his power because he's convinced with a false idea that he will really be happy. He will really be fulfilled if he gets something created and therefore all of his words, his behavior is shaped by one thing, desire. That's the old-fashioned way. You've been given new holy desires for God. And the only way we can get to verse 25 and start making progress and that's what sanctification is, is progress. And we should be glad about that because I need a lot of progress, right? If it was a done deal, I'd say, I'm a goner. I'm sorry. I'm gone. Not going to make it. No, we're making progress. That, that's the present tense verbs. Keep putting it on. Keep putting it off. Keep being renewed. Are you being renewed in the disposition of your mind? Are you being renewed in Christ? Are you bringing yourself to the Word and saying, Lord, show me your glory? Show me who you are. And then what does Paul say? Wherefore, putting away. I love how God just nicely, neatly packages it for us. I mean, well, that's what we expect from God. It just, it's just laid out nicely for us so we can rest in God, rest in Jesus. And then out of that grace, out of that new position, the old man's been crucified. We're alive in Christ. We need to reckon ourselves that way. Romans 6.11. Do you think of that? When you get up in the morning and say, I'm alive in Christ. I don't know what's going to face me today. I don't know what's going to happen. But because I'm alive in Christ, Jesus is for me. God's for me. His sovereignty is for me. His Spirit is with me. He has given me the power to make a little progress today. That's the spirit of your mind that we desperately need. That's what I desperately need. And that's what Jesus is for us. Of all that He is, many things, He's also that for us. Have you learned Christ? Can you say, without any, any equivocation, I, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior, and Jesus says, come to me and He will not cast you out. Isn't that good news? Say, well, you don't understand what I've done. There's no qualification there. That's right. If you desire to come, He won't cast you out. There's nothing that you can say to Jesus that He'll say, I didn't think of that one. I'm sorry, you're going to have to leave. He will never, no, never. That's the original. I may have added one or left off one, but it's it's compound negatives. He's saying to you, I'll never... I won't even think of casting you out. So come to Him. He's bread. He's water for your thirsty soul. And He's help. He's help against the battle. Against deceitful lust. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word.